Great. Hello and greetings, everyone. Welcome to another Connected Learning TV Hangout at Educator Innovator. Tonight is May 31st, 2017, and I'm the host for this Hangout tonight. I'm really honored to be the host. I'm Christina Cantrell, Associate Director of National Programs at the National Writing Project, and I welcome you all here today. Uh, tonight's focus, tonight's conversations actually focus on a few overlapping pieces of things, so we'll sort of tease that out as we go. First, it's a focus on the work of Bronwyn LeMay and her students, um, work that Bronwyn has now collected into an NWP TC Press published book titled, I have it right here, uh, get it up to the camera. Personal Narrative Revised, Writing Love and Agency in the High School Classroom. Um, this is also a conversation to invite you all into an annotation process. We're going to annotate, um, or this week, actually, we're annotating a chapter from this book uh, alongside other educators across the nation, potentially the globe. Um, and that's part of a larger fo project that's focused on um, key topics in learning and equity and using social annotation, I mean, annotation and social reading um, to think about these ideas together. That project's called Mar Marginal Syllabus, and we will hear more about that tonight and how you can participate. So I'll ask our guests to introduce themselves here in a moment. First, I'd like to say a special thank you for to all of you for making the time to be here. Um, we know this is, you know, taking this time of the day and um, being present for this work throughout the week is is really exciting. So thank you for doing that. Um, we also want to welcome anyone watching this Hangout Live to tweet thoughts and questions and related re uh, related resources that you might want to suggest to the hashtag Connected Learning. We will also be sharing some of the things that we mention on this webinar at that hashtag too. So that's hashtag connected learning. Okay, so let's get started with a round of introductions. I, why don't we start with just sort of everybody giving their name, where you are in the world right now, just so we can situate each other and the light that changes behind us. And then um, tell us a little bit about what brings you to the conversation today. Just a few sentences about that, and then we'll get into the larger work in a moment. Uh, Ramy, you're to my left, so why don't you start us off? Well, hello, everybody. My name is Ramy Kalir. I'm an assistant professor of information and learning technologies at the University of Colorado in Denver. So I'm in the Denver area today, and I am also one of the kind of co-organizers of a project called the Marginal Syllabus that's been partnering with Educator Innovator and is helping to organize the uh, event tonight. It's great, it's great to be here. Great, thanks, Ramy. Joe, you're up. So yeah, I'm Joe Dillon, and I'm also in Denver. I'm in my basement here in Denver. I work locally here in Aurora, which is a uh, large urban suburb of Denver, and I work at Rangeview High School, where I teach uh, 11th grade English, and I do instructional coaching. And so I'm also a co-organizer of the Marginal Syllabus Project with Ramy. Thank you. Jordan? Uh, I'm Jordan Carter, and I also live in Aurora, Colorado. Um, I was actually invited here by Joe Dillon, who's one of my instructional coaches at Rangeview. Um, so I'm just here learning from my main man, as always. Excellent. Uh, Brahman. Hey, I'm Bronwyn LeMay. Um, I live in Oakland. I am currently teaching 10th grade English at Impact Academy in Hayward. Um, and uh, worked really hard with a lot of students who are 
very willing to be vulnerable in the production of this book. So very, very grateful for their efforts as well. Yes, and we are too. So thank you for saying that. And thank you to your students for doing this work with you. Um, so great. So here we are. And thinking about how to get this conversation started today, because there's so much richness to talk about here. When Remy got on, um, when he first connected, he was you know, bubbling over with how much there is here to talk about. So I wanted to start um, us with a little bit of sort of laying out the nuts and bolts of this project, because we're sort of doing this experimental collaborative project here that crosses um, this new book that came out that um, is uh, part of the Marginal Syllabus Project. And so for our listening audiences, I just want to sort of get all of this situated a little bit. So uh, Ramey and Joe, you guys have been the leads on the project, uh, the Marginal Syllabus Project over this last year. And I know this is the um, final reading of a set of readings in your syllabus. Maybe you can go over quickly what this project has been and your overall goals, et cetera. Yeah, I'll begin briefly and mention that Joe and I were having conversations over a year ago now about how to bring educators together and how to have conversations about critical equity-oriented issues. And we thought that it was important to have those issues in a public way, in a way that invited in multiple voices, and also invited in people whose practice uh, really can ground the work. So educators and administrators, folks like Bronwyn, for example. And we've also been geeking out about a technology that allows for web annotation. And it's a technology that uses what's called the hypothesis platform. And so we started this project called the Marginal Syllabus as a very intentional political and also technical double entendre. So it's a project that engages with non-dominant perspectives, issues, and authors in the area of education and equity. So it's marginal in one respect, but it's also marginal in that it uses a web annotation platform to have conversations in the margins of an online document. And since August of 2016, we've partnered with authors who have provided us with blog posts or like this week, a book chapter, and we host that content online and we invite educators and others to join us in an annotation conversation. So that's a bit of the context, and Joe can help to fill in some of the details around who we've talked with, maybe some of the topics, and what this kind of looks like in practice. Uh, unmute, Joe. There we go. Sorry yeah, about that. So um, let's see. Yeah, there are a few different layers to, to this project, and the technical one is kind of interesting because, you know, there to some degree, these conversations we've been having, and we wanted them to be about equity, and we wanted to, you know, work with authors who had, you know, interests in in issues issues of equity. But uh, like the layers of the technology are interesting in the sense that, you know, the annotating together kind of feels like kind of a nerdy book club kind of thing to do, right? And the idea that, but there's also this new technology in there where people are, you know, when we convene these conversations, they're often remarking about like how writing in the margins worked, or how they got a reply in their email about a note, or somebody came in a week later to read a chapter, and they got a notification and were drawn back into a conversation. So it's this, this book group kind of feel to <clears throat> professional learning, excuse me, that, uh, <clears throat> that also, you know, is, uh, it's really the kind of thing where we're, we're wondering, you know, like, what are the bounds to 
you know, these marginal conversations we're having, um, what are the limitations to it? Because we, we do hear people, you know, we walk through, you know, technically what problems people had or questions people had. And, you know, there are channels we navigate even when we have this hangout. We have a Twitter stream going on. We have, a, you know, the face-to-face -face conversation. And then we even have, you know, emails that are pinging us. So this has all just led to, you know, a lot of interesting, you know, insights. And for me, it is interesting to dig into an article that I, I want to read socially, but also a technology that I'm curious how it strikes other people. Great, thank you. Um, and uh, one of the things that I that has been exciting for me, so I've been um, participating in marginal syllabus to the extent that um, I teach a course and had um, my students um, annotate some of the work that was in marginal syllabus. So it really, really became part of a syllabus that I was using for another course, which was also really exciting um, to, to pick up on this thing that was happening online in this other context and then connect to it. Um, and for and so right now at Educator Innovator, we started talking about how can we experiment with um, something that Joe and Ramey wanted to do, which was to sort of also have webinars connected to these these annotations and see how we could sort of draw out these conversations and provide multiple entry points to them too. So this is very much a part of that kind of um, experimenting. And in that experimentation, we had a conversation about those kinds of texts and this, this focus on equity and educational equity and some of the texts that we might wanna think about together. And uh, my colleague Tanya Baker said, you have to, I nominate Bronwyn LeMay's book, uh, Personal Narrative Revised. And so, um, we uh, looked at that and a piece that was written at KQED that interviewed Bronwyn and the NWP radio where Tanya interviewed Bronwyn and said, yes, oh, this feels really important. So I wanna um, uh, invite Bronwyn in here. Um, and um, this book overall, um, is I think really interesting. I invite people to listen to those interviews online. NWP Radio was in February, and you can still you can download that as a podcast. Um, so um, and um, I'd really like Brahman to give us a sense of sort of how this book came together because I think there are multiple pieces of it. But um, to kick us off, I just wanted to see if I could read some of the definitions that show up at the beginning of each chapter in this book. So students in Bronwyn's class defined the things that they were thinking about together, and those are used to highlight each of the chapters. So Bronwyn, if it's okay with you, do you mind if I read through a few of those? Okay, great. So um, just to give you a sense of this, so chapter three, uh, for instance, starts with two definitions. The first one is by Patrick. Um, and it's a writer. He writes, writer, a noun, a person, someone who goes through experiences and feels like people should know about them. Revision, noun, this is by Maisie. Revision, noun, me growing as a person and a writer. Uh, the 11th grade class in chapter two also defines love. Uh, love, a noun. One, a fantasy. Two, not loneliness, rejection, or losing someone. Three, the most wonderful thing any human being can receive. 
four, a desire to have, five, pain, six, something I push away, seven, an attachment, eight, something healing, essential to heal an emotional wound, nine, the only thing that can keep us together, 10, a pleasant thing that you think about when your family gave it to you or a shitty feeling when growing up with a painful experience. For everyone, it's different. 11, I don't really know. We go to chapter five, which is actually the, the chapter that we're annotating this week. And uh, Abraham defines agency. Agency, noun, the belief that I'm here for a, for a purpose. I'm not a nobody, I'm a somebody. He also um, defines truth, noun, where I get my pride and grace. And then finally, in the conclusion of the book, we have Diego's definition of education. Education, noun, not the knowledge itself, but the knowledge of how to practice that knowledge. So with that, I just want to um, ask Bronwyn to sort of talk to us about this amazing collection of work. Thank you very much for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, you know, I this began as actually a, a step away from graduate school. Um, I was in graduate school. I was doing my PhD, got to questioning what I was doing in graduate school and decided to go back to the classroom. And um, went back into a 10th grade classroom and I hadn't been teaching for a couple of years. Um, I'd forgotten how to scaffold things. Um, and I struggled. I really struggled. And um, by the end of the year, we had built some really powerful conversations. And the school asked me if I'd like to take this class a second year on to the 11th grade. And um, I said, absolutely. And it was really the second semester of our second year together when a lot of this work happened. But the foundation for it was laid in our first 18 months of trying to figure out how to communicate with one another. And one of the things that I realized was potent was that my kids did not trust school. They didn't have a reason to trust school. It was a system that had not valued what they brought to it in, in ways that they could perceive at all. And so, you know, thinking about how, you know, you're in a charter network, which of course comes with its own set of agendas sometimes that says college for all and just kind of imposes this mission onto kids without really drawing from them who they are and building around a sense that of a sense of authenticity and identity that feels real to them. So I realized we had to start naming some of these things. What is education? Why are we here? What does it mean to write? What you write every day. You know, we walk around writing things to ourselves all day long as you try to make sense of them. We read people all the time. You know, we're literate. That's just life. Revision is a life process. Um, think about things that you've storied one way and didn't quite work and you didn't know why and you try to figure out, you know, another way to tell it to yourself, to somebody else. Um, and I also just realized that a lot of my kids were dealing with a lot of trauma. Um, there was no language for talking about this in the charter network that I was dealing with. The College for Certain Mission, while it claimed to be uplifting every kid, was was really missing the heart of, of what some of those experiences and behaviors were, the very deep contexts they were coming from. Um, and that's why we picked Song of Solomon. You know, I love Toni Morrison, and I feel like that's what her work is very much dealing with, is looking at all these levels of narrative 
you know, you have your personal and you get stuck in the personal, but you don't realize that you can contextualize it. You know, you can contextualize the family story, the community story in a much bigger story where you can get to a definition of truth that can be much richer than the one that you're operating on, which, which tends a lot of times for kids to be very self-deprecating, you know, blaming yourself for things that are bigger than you because you don't know how else to take responsibility for them. So, um, you know, the book began almost by accident. Um, we were starting the opening chapters of Song of Solomon, which is a pretty tough read. It's not linear. Um, there's some disturbing images in the first few chapters. So I thought, okay, we're going to just journal our way through this. And day one, I said, you know, 10 minutes, what is love? Go. And that's when it began. You know, I had two girls outside crying. I had kids staring at the paper trying to figure out what to do with it. I had kids writing and writing who after 10 minutes were just like, I'm not done. No, don't, you know. And we talked for 45 minutes about it and just decided this was going to be a project. We were going to figure out, first of all, why this question, what is love, was so... Um, <laughs> it was so evocative for us. Um, but I think we also decided that we needed to delve deeper and look at different levels of the stories that it was really hitting at, that were the stories we lived by and operated on every day that we didn't even realize we were operating on. And then I realized, wait a second, that's what Song of Solomon is about. And that's what many books are about. You know, characters who have life narratives, and those life narratives become the stories that they write, whether they realize it or not. Um, so how do we write the stories we want to write? How do we take back agency in our own story? When we've, when we've written a story that we don't even realize has, we stripped our power from ourselves in our attempts sometimes to just hold ourselves accountable for things we don't know how to fix. Wow. <laughs> um, thank you. I mean, that's a, I, I, I can feel that in the book, this sort of moment of like, what is love? And then, whoa, <laughs> you know, this whole thing kind of, opens. Um, and I also hear that, you know, this was built on a foundation that you guys had worked on for, for many months. Um, maybe you could, so speaking of the stories we want to tell and the life narratives, this book is sort of a weaving together of stories that your students actually shared with you and wrote with you and, 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 um, talked to you about and and recorded with you in various ways. Um, and chapter five highlights one of the students. Um, could you sort of take us to that chapter and introduce us to him? And um, uh, it's called Revising Narrative Truth, a provocative title on, in, in and of itself. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so Abraham was probably one of the students I built a relationship with the quickest in our first year of working together. And it was an incredibly rocky relationship. Um, one I realized pretty quickly on was gonna pose some growth challenges for me if I chose to take them. Um, and uh, our relationship was never very stable. Uh, we are still in touch. Um, it's still not always stable. I think we challenge each other a lot. Um, <clears throat> but you know, the first couple months of school, I just thought to myself, why is this kid staring at me? He's just sitting there, he's just staring at me. Is he trying to read me? Is he trying to intimidate me? Is he trying to make me feel self-conscious? Does he know what he's trying to do? But that look, I still can close my eyes and picture him just staring at me. And then I realized one day he was trying to figure out how to, how to start a conversation. And to be honest, I didn't quite know how to start it either, so I let him do it. Um, 
And he would just kind of come down when he was supposed to be in the resource period and just talk. And we would sit there and talk, and sometimes I'd be like, okay, you know, let's let's work on this assignment or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and uh, sometimes I didn't even care. I <laughs> just, oh, this is much more fun. So uh, we built a relationship that was pretty good by the end of our first year. Um, the second year, we started having a lot of eruptions. And the, the issue was that the whole class would feel it. Um, the issue also is that it tended to bring out more than any other kid my default, which is to take things personally <laughs> and to step away and withdraw in a way that can actually be really triggering, right? Because you're like, I'm not doing anything, but you are. You know, you're playing a victim. I was playing a victim. A lot of that comes from my own personal narrative. And I should add that I did these personal papers with my students. I wrote my definition of love. Um, I did a narrative template. Um, I looked at my why me story. I didn't do the academic papers because I've done enough of those in my life. But, um, you know, I, I realized too that Abraham struggled when I just observed to hold stable relationships with most people. You know, his relationships with peers, with his girlfriend, with, um, with just authority and adults could be very explosive. Um, he was also remarkably honest about this. And so sometimes we would have these piercingly honest conversations and then sometimes we wouldn't be speaking to each other. Um, and, you know, as we started reading Song of Solomon, he was paying attention. He was very engaged, particularly with the character of guitar. And, um, you know, was very convinced that this character was operating on love. But there were things in his life that had twisted that love into something that was hard to recognize. And it was still love, you know. But he just needed help getting the quality of his love to a place that wasn't destroying himself. And I think I mentioned in the book, you know, I asked them to do a reflection at the beginning just on their initial impression. And he wrote, you know, there are characters in this book who have secrets that just won't come out. I can relate to that, you know? And he just kind of alluded to this it, this thing that was looming. He didn't tell me what it was and I actually didn't know what, what it was, but I had a sense that whatever it was lay at the core of his story. It was something he hadn't processed or didn't know how to process into a story that didn't just self-sabotage. And that that was actually at the root of his tendency to push people away that he really wanted in his life. He didn't learn from teachers he didn't have relationships with. He didn't engage with people he didn't like. He put doors up in a way that I've seen other kids do, but never more so than him. But he needed these relationships badly. So it was this constant push-pull of really, really needing to connect with people and believe in himself and push the same people away that were trying to offer him that. Um, and then he just decided at one point that he was just going to unpack that story. I didn't know what he was going to unpack. None of us knew what he was going to unpack. He decided he was going to share it with the class, and I let him. And I think it really made the class realize what was at the root of a lot of that behavior. It made a lot of students want to think for themselves, wait a second, what do I need to be understanding about myself that's driving my story in ways I don't feel like I can control? Great, Great. thank Thanks. you. Um, yeah, I hear a lot about, and actually uh, in reading the text, the, the book as a whole, you really start to see the stories of these youth um, and writers interchange, like, impacting each other. So it's wonderful to hear you talk about his impact on the class and vice versa and that 
that piece. And because um, even though the chapter is about an individual, it's still about this collective community that you all built. Um, I wanted to, um, so we have this, so we, right now, the chapter that Brahman was just talking about and um, some of the work of um, Abraham is, it's actively um, being looked at and folks are annotating it. Um, and so um, I just put a link out to some information, to the chapter itself, as well as the sort of background how-to about how to annotate. But I wanted to jump into some of the conversations and invite us all to start talking about some of the things that are coming up in the annotations um, as we um, look at this chapter. And many of us, it's really only the chapter that we're looking at. And, and so um, thinking about the conversation um, from that view. Um, I was looking at the annotations a few hours ago, and there have been some that have been added since then. So other people should come up with suggestions. But Joe, I meant I noticed at one point that you had talked about how the words conflict in reading loom large um, in the chapter as you were reading it. I was wondering maybe if you could talk about that a little bit. Any questions that it raises for you? Yeah, you know, I think this chapter resonated with me for a, a number of reasons, and just you know. A sur one surface one was that I myself have been out of the classroom for a few years. And this is sort of a re this year was a, a re-entry in the classroom for me. And so I, I caught myself, you know, sort of just feeling a little bit like fish out of water when it came time to like, you know, redirect a student for their behavior. Something I used to do all the time. I'm just out of practice and I would catch myself like asking all kinds of questions, just sort of like overthinking it, you know, that kind of thing. So the chapter resonates for me on a lot of levels in that way, but I think the very first page where uh, you talk about Abraham, or it talks about Abraham saying, you know, that he needs relationships in order to learn. I've heard in equity professional learning, people say that, you know, our most troubled students will often say, well, I'll do Mr. So-and-so's work, but I'm not doing any of Mr. So-and-so's work. And the idea that for our students who like need help the most, they start to say that like, oh, unless I have a relationship, I'm not doing any. And I think, you know, so I, I don't want to put too much of, you know, what I perceive from sometimes troubled students on Abraham, because I, I identify with just a lot of this stuff or a lot of this thinking. But, uh, you know, often at the high school level, you know, it can be a problem if a student has, a you know, a troubled literacy background or a troubled background period. Often the system doesn't serve them as well as we hope, especially if they've seen themselves as a struggling reader or writer for any length of time that can often just act like a cog in the wheels or, you know, you know, a fly in the ointment to mess with my metaphors. You know, the idea that our system struggles with somebody who brings these type of life challenges or literacy challenges. And so what I noticed early on in the chapter was that, you know, almost every time uh, Abraham's reading was discussed, it was really about Abraham's ability to read a situation or Abraham's ability to read a teacher and that the teacher also needed to read him. And so there's really not, a lot of deficit language about him or what he can do, but it is about, you know, the primacy of the relationship. And that's what struck me. Those are kind of my first notes. Um, just to pick up on that, Ramey, you had written, written sort of about how I mean, it is very much 
or I think, I don't want to characterize the chapter either and invite people to, to talk about it, but, you know, there's this story of Bromwin and Abraham's relationship throughout this chapter. Um, and um, you made a comment in there about how it's a reminder of how learning is a relational labor. So maybe you want to pick up on that piece that Joe was actually was thinking about too. Yeah, I appreciate, Joe, what you just said about the primacy of the relationship. And it, it you know, again, my experience of reading this chapter, and, and again, I, I want to thank, again, Bronwyn, but also, of course, Abraham and, and all of her students for being so open to uh, sharing with nuance what the relationships um, that really undergird their learning, what, what those felt like and what those looked like and what those sounded like. And it's often lost in conversations about, you know, standardized test scores or evaluating teachers or new curriculum or whatever it is that at the fundamental level, these are people who are having relationships with one another. And it was very powerful for me to read such a moving piece about the real emotional, intellectual, uh, logistical relationships that were necessary to coordinate all of that. Uh, you know, there are details in the chapter about not only assignments that were written, but text messages that are getting sent back and forth and conversations that are happening if in the classroom or in the hallway. And um, I think that, you know, educators uh, would really uh, just probably a lot would resonate with them as they read with, again, this great nuance, what um, Bronwyn and Abraham and all of her students experienced to really, again, move their learning uh, to a really meaningful place, again, of connection and love, which is just really, it was really powerful. Um, so, you know, we've begun to unpack some of that in the annotations that are now atop the, this version of her chapter. But uh, again, for me, this, this, as Joe just said, the primacy of the relationship and Brown, as you captured in all of your writing so well, it's, it's there and it's really rich. Yeah, well, you know, I'm actually somebody as well who doesn't do well with authority without a relationship. And so, um, you know, I think it makes me want to try to figure out how to get through more than anything else. I get really, really frustrated as a teacher when I feel like I'm not communicating with a kid. Um, and, you know, it was interesting, too, because, you know, some really sensitive stuff came out in these writings. And um, obviously, I'm not a trained therapist, and I want to really push the point as well that I really try to focus on how he was writing, not what he was writing, right? So how are you telling that? What's your tone when you say that? What are other story choices you could make? You know, let me tell you a story shift I've, I'm trying to make right now, but when I hear myself slipping into this passive voice, I... I realized that I need to, you know, think about how I could have just said that differently. So I kept trying to spin academic language, but not traditional academic language. I mean, I was pulling from narrative theory. I was pulling from writing composition. I was pulling from a lot of stuff that doesn't always make it into K-12 professional development, honestly, um, but that I think is really relevant to K-12 teaching around the self-narrative. You know, not compartmentalizing it, but using it as the basis for all genres of writing. You know, and thinking about this idea of what is narrative truth. Well, it's not necessarily objective. We have enormous agency in how we spin truth out of our story, but we don't realize it. You know, so if you can figure out where the revision lies, right, and build the relationship in tandem with these conversations that are just kind of interesting and engaging and, and, and things like that, you know, that, that was kind of what I was trying to blend.
Um, I'm glad you made that um, distinction, Bronwyn. I thought that was really um, interesting and important in the book too, and and, and in this chapter. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, and and constantly, what you you bring us back to sort of the relationship between this work, uh, this relational work, these personal narratives, and the academic work that the youth are doing, um, both the reading of Song of Solomon, in some ways the writing of Song of Solomon, right, in their own words, and their own ways. And um, in this chapter, another person annotated um, a comment you made about getting to know Abraham. It was sort of early in your relationship, and you talked a little bit about it, where you would sort of sit and talk, and, and you described um, noticing, again, the opposite of deficit language, like really noticing his uh, his academic dexterity is what you talked about. So one person commented on that in the annotations. So I wanted to talk about that. And then another person um, responded and said, what is academic dexterity actually? So maybe we should just talk, talk about that a little bit because I think it's kind of interesting and such a key part of what I think you're, you, you're describing in the text. <clears throat> well, I think, um, you know, it's kind of a blend to a certain extent of, of intuition, smarts that you just gain from, from figuring out hard things in life and also figuring out where in school any of that matters. And actually it does if you can find the right door. Um, but I also think, you know, one of the things I've always tried to do as a teacher, probably just because this is how I think, is move kids back and forth between personal and academic thinking, personal and academic territory. They're related. There's not this thing called academics that's over here somewhere, and then your personal life is separate from that, right? It's ways of constantly finding how things connect, right? And where's the takeaway? And you know, you can you can see things if you're open to it, right? So this idea that literacy is is kind of everywhere. Everything is a text. I mean, we actually the first year I had this class, we did a lot of readings um, around what does it mean to read, and we looked at fairies, the importance of the act of reading, and just took key lines out of there and really define for ourselves what reading meant. You know, is it reading a parent? Is it seeing through the eyes of a parent and realizing that your way of seeing is different? And when as a kid you have that moment where that's actually a really powerful realization? You know, is it this idea that you form a relationship to this tree in the backyard and it creates this whole space for you that has a whole emotional affect to it, but you've created that. You know, that's a certain kind of text. Um, so we spend a lot of time thinking about literacy in ways that were way, way, way beyond the four walls of the schoolroom. Um, and I think just constantly being able to shift words like read, write, revise in and out of a context of school. Um, and realizing, you know, with some kids, revisions happen in their personal self stories that then completely change their reading of academic text. For some kids, their reading, their revision happened in seeing something differently in the book that they were like, oh, wait, that's a problem spot in my story. I do that. In fact, I did that here. Okay, wait, maybe this is what my revision is. And just kind of identifying their personal work, but at the same time trying to figure out what any of that meant in terms of their identity as a student academically. Yeah, I think that's that's super super important. And it's one of the pieces that made me think about, you know, this book is about writing. And I think there's this very specific piece of it that's really important about writing, sort of the creative act 
of that. And I was thinking about the sort of what could be learned multidisciplinarily about this kind of work too, and that those how to how to develop those kind of relationships in any kind of work that you're doing. Um, uh, probably there's this creative piece is probably a core part of it, actually. But um, um, I wanted to sort of open up. I I was really excited about. Um, you bring it talking about restorative practices again to me that feels like a sort of whole school thing um, I mean it it did sound like from the your your story that you were supported in this by your school um, or your administrator and so um, or the school administrator in this case so that um, that there was an environment where you were sort of thinking about restorative practices in that school and in that space. Um, but I was thinking that um, that these you, these are examples of restorative practices and restorative sort of justice and action, I would say, um, and how important it is to think about gathering up these stories and how valuable these examples are to think about this work. Is there anything to add that you'd like to say about that kind of work? Yeah, I think one of the things that Abraham's story really, really elucidated for me is this idea that if the ways you're, if the ways you're punish, punishing a kid or the consequences you're using are actually reinforcing story themes that that kid's operating on that they don't always realize they're operating on, and you're accidentally sending the message, who you are is a problem, who you are is the problem, right? All, where's the healing in that? Where's the change mechanism in that? That's exactly the story he's operating on. Humiliation and rejection are the core themes of this kid's story, right? So I can send him out, I can humiliate him, I can reject him, the school can send him out. And I think I was very fortunate to work with a group of educators who understood this. It's actually one of very few times in my career I felt like I worked with an administrative team and an overall group of teachers where we were on the same page with this, and that was huge. That's a big part of why this work happened. Um, but you know, what I realized I had to do was tease apart the message of, I love you. The story's not working for me. Like the story you're operating on, I'm, I'm pushing that away. I'm pushing that away. Like that story needs some revision, right? Because the truth that you're trying to spin at me right now, I'm not buying. But it's not you. Who you are is not the problem, right? Who you are is, is, is the resolution here, right? Who you are, there's, there's the agency to make the revision. So how do you change from a story of self-annihilation, which is really where he started. You know, I hate the truth, I'd erase my identity if I could. Lord, just erase my birth date, somebody do it for me. Um, versus taking some power back and saying, wait a second, truth is where I get my pride and grace. You know, and like the behaviors changed when the story themes changed. And it kind of turned a corner where for once we didn't turn back in the same cycle. And that was notable. Yeah, beautiful. I wanted to um, sort of invite um, anyone to 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 sort of ask questions or open this conversation. Ramy, did you want to pick up? I do. I'm going I'm to shift the conversation just a little bit, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because I feel as though Brian, when you've given us this. I mean, the source text, my goodness, the stories, uh, your perspectives, Abraham's perspectives and his writing, it's, it's so rich. And, and my hope is that folks on this webinar and others who might be watching or others who might access this later 
will find the text that we've hosted and will then join the annotation conversation and jump into the kind of margin of that text and have a continued conversation there. Um, so I, I think that the themes of truth and narrative and love and agency will continue and the applications to classroom practice will hopefully continue through that conversation. So I want to make a little pivot then and actually shift toward kind of our experiences. We're all educators in some way in different settings, some more formal, some maybe less formal, some in K-12, some in higher ed. And I'm curious how this experience serves as a professional learning opportunity. And I would actually be really curious to maybe hear uh, from you, Jordan, about your experience. You're an early career educator and you're working closely in a partnership and a mentorship relationship with Joe. And you've been reading this text now and I'd be really curious and hopefully others are as well to hear from you about your experience reading Bronwyn's chapter and also your experience reading it through this kind of social reading, kind of nerdy book club thing that we're doing with annotation and what that's been like for you in terms of maybe thinking about your own practice, your own teaching, help us to understand your experience a little bit. Well, I was struck by, honestly, the, the different characteristics in Abraham that I could see in my students. And I was seeing some of the issues that he seemed to have. I could see those in several of my students. And Joe and I work at a large urban high school. Um, you know, we have what, Joe? Well, if Joe, Joe teaches a couple classes. I teach five. So I have like 160, 170 students. So I could see these struggles in my students. And I felt like I could relate to a lot of things she was talking about. And I could, re I could relate to feeling like I was dealing with the, the psychology of my students every day. Like, if I push too far this way, then they're just going to shut down, you know? Or maybe if I tried this, if I tried this thing, this didn't work today, what can I do tomorrow with this student? And it, it, I think more than anything else, I was just struck by how relatable this was to me in my experience in the classroom. Um, as far as talking about annotating this with other people, I think it's it's nice to be able to see this um, to annotate something with other adults. Um, I, you know, we just got done with the school year where we we're annotating things with a bunch of sixteen to seventeen year olds who only halfway want to do that or pretend like they want to do it. Especially in the last month or so of school, you know, it's some really quality stuff that we're working with. But um, I, I I was just you know it was really interesting to me. Um, just reading something that I feel like could have been could have been something I've gone through this year, this year, which is something different than you know annotating, you know, literature or I, I remember Song of Solomon reading that in high school. I think it's the last time I read it. So I, I I was just I was just struck by how relatable it was to me, and it's the, some of the work that Joe and I do deals directly with this. And I know Joe has worked with some of my students that are a little more hesitant. Um, I can think of one in particular that worked with Joe and I, he seemed to work better with Joe and I think he was able to forge a better relationship with him for whatever reason that was um, and I think it really it really impacted the way he learned and worked with him and you could see a difference in how he interacted with him as opposed to how he was in my classroom so just like just the direct examples just the the memories this seemed to come back pretty quickly even though it was even though I've only been teaching for two years now um, I think it's good. It was good for me to see that um, people who know a lot more than me about teaching struggle with some of the same things over a long period of time. 
Jordan, one thing that one part that maybe I would want would have wanted to talk to you about outside of this project is kind of like the difference between like I guess between like grading and scoring and feedback and the idea that you have to kind of like read the student and know how much you can push them. And I think I was I was kind of interested in that because it's apart from traditional notions of how should we grade, like what does good feedback look like? And I think, you know, just you and I being, you know, in each other's classrooms and kind of just in each other's business so much in terms of like seeing kids on a rough day or whatever. I was kind of interested in the sense that, you know, like, you know, Bronwyn was kind of talking about needing to gauge the relationship and coming up with a feedback strategy that's kind of tailored to this kid who would just shut down, even though you know they're smart, getting them to do anything productive or getting them to do something that, that is quality becomes a struggle, right? And I think the idea that like, you're looking for that feedback that gets quality work out of somebody you know is capable, but you also know they're like so ready to, you know, to wait you out until the end of the period. Um, who was trying to talk? Okay. Um, I, I just struck by how, you know, the, the, conversation Bronwyn shared potentially supports this conversation between Joe and Jordan and you know I mean that's sort of a beautiful live thing that we sort of can see a little bit of here and so um, this you know so I'm struck by the power of annotating an article like this together within sort of a shared community um, and I you know, having a webinar like this and seeing each other face to face, I also wonder how much that supports us sort of developing sort of a sense of trust to do that kind of thing together or start to open up those doors. So um, I don't know. I mean, as this is sort of experimental as we go too, I'm just sort of noticing that and thinking about it out loud. Yeah, there's a lot to think about out loud there as well, Christina. And I, you know, I'll try and keep this short without rambling too much, but the focus that Bronwyn puts so, uh, again, in such a careful way, in such an intentional way on the role of writing in, in these social relationships and in the individual relationship that she has with Abraham as a real anchor for the chapter, but then also in this way that it creates community within her classroom and the social bonds amongst her students. And again, for those who haven't yet read the chapter, and again, please do so, uh, and please annotate it. Um, there's this incredible picture of the students. Uh, you know, it's there's these there's these there's these bonds of social connectedness that are very much, um, you know, the result of pedagogy and the result of work that is intellectual. But again, they're very much rooted in in individual agency and in and in the sense of love and different kinds of love. So as that is happening in the text, there's also um, or maybe in a subtext, there's another set of of, of contextual relationships that people are developing through writing as annotation. And the way in which, um, you know, currently to date, there's about 60 odd annotations on the document right now. And I've read it once, but I'll be probably reading it again. And Christina's read it, and Joe's read it, and, and Jordan's read it, and other people are reading it. And some people are jumping in and having an annotation here or a little comment there. And there's a lot, I think, for us to think about in terms of the way that the, the social act of reading and the social act of writing through things like this public annotation and the various practices that come along with that weave very nicely into, in this case, the strong themes 
of Bronwyn's chapter. And as I mentioned very briefly, you know, we're concluding nine months of work in this marginal syllabus project. We've had over a dozen partner authors. We've had nine uh, partner author texts. And so to end our year, our first year of programming uh, with a text that is so closely related to the kind of work that we're trying to do has just been a real joy. It's just a real joy. Um, so I'm in the sort of official timekeeper mode, and we are getting close to the end of our hour. But what's great is that we can go annotate together and keep this conversation going and dig further into this work and share across. So that's wonderful. Um, I am wondering if I can um, uh, pick up on, ask Joe and Ramey to sort of walk us through how you do this, just nuts and bolts wise. And then maybe we'll take a chance to have everybody go around and sort of just say final thoughts that start to emerge out of this or things that you hope for out of this work. So. Yeah, a few quick nuts and bolts. We're using yeah. an annotation platform called Hypothesis. Hypothesis is also a nonprofit organization and we are using a public annotation mode to have this conversation. It's a free platform uh, when you're annotating. Um, you can either do so by following a link that is uh, listed in the resources for this webinar. You can also, if you'd like, install a Chrome extension if you're using the Chrome browser. And once you've done so, you can create an account for free and join, again, this kind of public layer of annotation atop Ronwin's text in this case. And the steps for doing that take maybe two minutes, uh, if that. And again, it's a free and very easy to use platform, all of the instructions of which are listed in the uh, information that edu uh, in Educator Innovator has been so kind to put together for us. And we can tweet out that link on the Connected Learning hashtag uh, right now. Great. And um, just Joe, just because I thought that you said before this webinar started that you actually had worked on this on paper. And one of the things that I, it it's it, neither here nor there, but like when I was using hypothesis in my class, it was one of the plays that I like helped people who haven't done annotations before. When I, one of the things I saw, suggested, like you can go, you know, mark up a piece of paper, you know, and then come and share your social annotations and actually even think about what the difference is between those two things too. It's like one of the ways that I supported folks in, in trying it out for the first time. Um, do you have any sort of thoughts like that or things that you've learned from doing this work together in Aurora? Um, well, let's see, we've, we've invited a few different stakeholders here and there, you know, and, in terms of using this tool. And I think, I guess, you know, what's important to me is, you know, the idea that, you know, we understand this hypothesis as a social tool where we can, you know, we can expand or extend our reading practice, like, you know, because I have my marked up chapter here, right? And here's just how much I was writing on the first page, right? And the idea that, you know, I could very quickly fill up that margin and make it kind of an unreadable margin, but I did want to contribute to a conversation. So to some degree, there's a level of like revision that goes into me saying, okay, here's, I was thinking about a lot on this first page as I was making sense of what kind of book this is, what kind of a chapter I'm in for, and then I was making connections to a lot of, you know, reading theory that I was interested in and equity, equity professional learning I'd had. But, you know, just having to synthesize that down for a group, you know, is interesting. So I had to, you know, instead of the 
50 things I wrote in the margin because I wanted to be prepared for this conversation. I had to distill it down to about 10 notes, you know, and even now as I go through, you know, I was kind of tracking who was marking up what leading up to this conversation, you know, and I, there's a few points about, you know, we haven't talked about um, Abraham's trouble with the law, but I noticed that I had notes about that here and Jordan had made a comment about that in the margins. And that's something where I can, I can respond to Jordan and, you know, make notes in that way. And the idea that these conversations that spring up between teachers, you know, you're thinking about what do you want to talk about with the social audience? And that conversation can move out of the margins into an email chain or, or it might just stay in the margins. And, you know, the other thing that's always been exciting for me about this project is when um, other educators say, hey, I've been too busy, but this summer I'm going to dig into this. Or uh, I had a, another colleague from NWP say, hey, I want to get some of my, you know, my like pre-service teachers into this project. And so we're really excited to look at the text and the notes. So I think that's some of the, the functionality of this, of, you know, this marginalia that's important is that these conversations, you know, leave a footprint that other people can follow and other people can respond to. And, you know, for everybody who's made a note, you probably will get an email down the road that somebody responded to your note as more people direct their eyes to this text. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So we are um, here to close. Um, and I was wondering if we could sort of open up for final comments. Um, uh, Brahman, one of the wonderful things is that um, you are here with us as the author of this text also to respond um, in, the, in the margins with us. So um, thank you for that. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you'd like to share as people sort of endeavor on this this week. Um. Um, you know, I would just very much welcome people's thoughts and people's um, feedback. I, I did, when I was thinking about Abraham's story, you know, he wasn't the first kid, it's kind of what Jordan was saying, who, who I had had certain cycles with or had certain patterns with. You know, I think it was probably the first time in my maturity that I had been able to kind of understand how to grow in my own way that I needed to, to really be able to work with him. But, um, you know, I feel like his story represents a lot of kids who are currently not getting what they need in schools for a variety of reasons. They intimidate teachers. They push away people that um, maybe don't know how to best communicate with them, but, you know, would. They, they struggle with authority. They, they, they aren't, they're assessed by things that have nothing to do with their own personal growth and their own personal work, and school just feels very irrelevant and very decontextualized. And so, you know, I guess I just hope that, that his willingness to put his story out there and all of their willingness to put their stories out there helps us rethink, you know, what is this purpose of education? Where are we at with it right now? Which kids are we missing? And why? And what, if, how committed are we to really getting at the deeper reasons of that as a society? Are we throwing away kids and saying we're not? Great. Thank you. And thank you again. And thank you to your um, former students, the writers of this book, the collective team that really shared all of this work. This is so um, powerful and really appreciated. Um, final thoughts or things that people want to say before we sign off in addition to that? I just want to thank everyone for coming together uh, and again Bronwyn for being a partner in this work and sharing so fully and for continuing to share 
the stories of Abraham and other students with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for being a part of this project and for joining our conversation today. All right. Well, why don't we um, sign off for this evening and um, check the uh, Educator Innovator website for information about um, this entire project and how to get connected, the connected learning hashtag. We sent some links directly there and the archive of this show will also have all the links you need to find the, um, the article to annotate with us. So thank you everyone for making the time tonight and being here and so appreciate all of this work and looking forward to seeing you online.